This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Hiring rebounded in the month of April. You know that. You've been listening to us. The unemployment rate uh, also dropping below 4% for the first time since 2000. Wage gains, though, they cooled by more than forecast. Maybe a sign that the labor market still isn't tight enough to bring on inflation. Chris Liu, lucky for us, back with us, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He's former deputy secretary of labor. That was under President Obama. He's a lawyer and someone who's worked for all three branches of the federal government. So he looks at everything from uh, multiple lenses. He joins us on the phone from Virginia. Hey, Chris, good to have you back with us on this Jobs Friday. What's your assessment of uh, the latest data points? You know, Carol, I thought this was a good report, but you honed in on the area that gives me concern, which is wages. And you would think that at 3.9% unemployment, we'd start to see that wage growth, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And I think at a certain point, we need to realize there's either much more slack in the labor market than we had all anticipated, or maybe this is fundamentally a different economy at this point, given globalization, given uh, technology changes. Um, Look, the stock market certainly likes this report. I Mm -hmm. think from a worker perspective, I'm a little bit less fond of it. Yeah, because it's interesting, right? Like, how do you... I'm trying to reconcile how, you know, I've got companies who come on and say, well, I can't find the workers we need, whether it's a fast food company or a high tech company. And then you've got, you know, average hourly earnings showing a deceleration like that just doesn't make sense to me. Right. And we, you know, and we also need to add a fairly big caveat on this drop in the unemployment rate that in large part, it's because 410,000 people left the labor force. And so we often say that um, the unemployment rate sometimes goes down for good reasons. Sometimes it goes down for bad reasons. And this is going down for bad reasons. And so, you know, it is um, it's a positive report in the sense that I think it's a nice rebound from last month. Uh, But I think it will certainly the the market is looking at it. um, I think different the way I'm looking at it. I know the Fed is looking at it, too, in terms of upcoming interest Mm -hmm. rate hikes. Chris, hey, put yourself back at the Labor Department. And so you get this report and you look at the trend lines that we've had over the last year or so when it comes to job creation, lack of wage growth. What would be the meetings you would be having with your staff? (laughs) What would be the meetings you might be having with the White House? Well, look, you know, we obviously took a much different approach to growing wages then and growing jobs in this administration. You know, I we, we saw the tick up in uh, jobs, um, I'm sorry, in wages in January, uh, and in part that was because we had minimum wage hikes in about, I think, 18 different states in, in the month of January. Uh, if we were going to spend a trillion dollars, uh, I suspect we would have spent it on roads and bridges and a, a, a comprehensive uh, infrastructure bill instead of uh, tax cuts. So, you know, uh, there are a whole series of pro-worker worker policies, whether it's the overtime rule that we tried to put in place, paid leave, minimum wage. Um, you know, I think the trickle-down approach that this administration has followed certainly is not one that we would have uh, pursued. You know, I, I found also interesting what you said when we just kind of kicked off this interview and you said about, you know, maybe we're it's a different economy because of globalization and technology. You know, we say them a lot, but that those are key factors at work, and they have been at work for a while. 
Right, and and it's and it's the it's it speaks more broadly to the importance of uh, focusing on skills in this economy, and that um, you know those people that are going to survive and prosper in the 21st century are, are those people who have more than a high school degree, and to the extent that they have advanced, it, it doesn't need to be a four-year degree, but it certainly needs to be some advanced training through a community college, through an apprenticeships, um, and that there is going to be this kind of lower level of service sector jobs um, that don't necessarily pay higher wages. And, you know, those are, are basically stuck at minimum wage, which hasn't gone up in, uh, we're heading on nine years that has not been raised at this point. And so what do we do to upskill people? And then what do we do for those jobs where, you yeah. know, the wages are never going to catch up? Well, that's the thing that I feel like is a bigger story. And if we don't get smart soon, um, I think we're already in crisis in some ways because of the gap between those who are making a decent living and able to support themselves and then some, and those who are maybe working, but it's still just not enough. And I, I think about, you know, a lot more people talking about a living wage uh, and whether or not there needs to be some kind of payments from governments to help those people, you know, no strings attached so that um, they can support themselves. I mean, how does this – and I know I'm probably going to have a bunch of listeners saying, oh, here we go again, more government money going out. But, I mean, what is the solution? Do we know yet? Well, I think that you've hit it exactly right. I mean, if you go to any factory today, uh, U.S. manufacturing is making more products than it's ever made with far fewer people, and this is simply because of automation. Mm -hmm. Yet there's a whole category of jobs, and it could be the cashier at my grocery store, it could be the person who cuts my hair, where that's going to have to be a job that is done by somebody. And if that is a job that you were expecting people to work full-time and raise a family, then we ought to actually pay these people a living wage. We ought to create a social safety net that includes a health care, that includes a pension, uh, and recognizing that there is there are jobs that you can't automate, and how do you incentivize people to take those jobs and raise families on those incomes? Where does education fit into all of this? Oh, it's critically important, and as I said, I mean, I think we are long past the point in this country where somebody can raise a family with just a high school education, and we really have to get into the mindset that some amount of post-high school education, as I said, whether it's a community college, whether it's an apprenticeship, uh, is necessary. And beyond that, how do we create a culture of lifelong learning? Because we know that the economy is going to continue to change. You're going to have new technologies. How do we quickly skill people for new technologies their entire career because yeah. we are past the point now where whatever education you have at 18 or 22 can last you the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. It's a very different model I feel like is needed going forward. Uh, Chris Liu, nice to talk with you again. Have a great weekend. venture capitalists be able to find something better when it comes to finding the startups to invest in? Well, that's the subject of a new story that's out in Bloomberg Business Week. It's a great story. Joshua Brustein wrote it. He's technology writer at Business Week. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And I love, you know, you kind of kick it off where you talk about white male venture capitalists, right? They tend to invest in... Other white males, obviously. <laughs> That's been a big topic of conversation over the last couple of months and, and years, honestly. Um and so it turns out that 
there's a long body of research that shows the more you depersonalize any process, the less unconscious biases end up playing a role in that process. The mm-hmm. classic study is um, orchestras making violinists um, audition behind a screen. And once you did that, all of a sudden there were a lot more women violinists that made orchestras. And so the idea behind this automated investment um, platform that I wrote about is if you don't have the venture capitalists meet with the founders, then you end up with founders that look much more diverse. Interesting. And you're talking about one firm in particular, Social Capital, right, that's doing this yeah, or, so or getting ready to do it. They, they have it. started doing it. It's in experimental mode, I guess you would say at this point. But yeah, Social Capital, it's a you know relatively well-known firm in the Valley run by a guy named Chamath Palahapatiya, who um, is a former Facebook executive and has been really aggressively experimental by um, the standards of venture capitalists. He brought in someone in particular. Um, was it Ashley Carroll? And she's got an algorithm, right? And and she's been that's what they've been playing with at social capital. Yeah, that's right. Social capital was actually using algorithms to as part of their due diligence. When they would decide we're gonna invest in this firm, they would run um, a series of computer models based on its um, sort of financials and other information. After and they already had decided. After, pretty much after they decided to right. say, like, are there any red flags here? And and what Ashley did was she said, you know, let's flip this on its head. We could use the same tools to assess companies before we've already gone through three meetings and and everything. And and maybe we'll find companies that way that we wouldn't have found otherwise. And that's what's interesting because you say, you know, in terms of bias, you may say, I'm not biased, but you don't know if there's things at play as you make decisions, correct? And this potentially could take that out of the equation. Exactly. I mean, you pretty much do know. Every, everyone has these biases. You don't want to admit it, but the, the, the research is so broad on this subject. You know, you, you, the guy, the founder of Social Capital, though, he's got some interesting thoughts, though, on this because it would allow him, Joshua, right, because to, to maybe look at more firms and potentially invest in more startups because it's a pretty time consuming, labor intensive process for these VCs to invest in firms. They look at a lot of firms before they make the investments, and they tend to make investments in just a few. Exactly. I think the main thing social capital is trying to do here is actually an, um, change the economics more than the demographics of um, you know of startups. They want to be able to assess a really broad range of firm of, of startups, invest small amounts of money and far more than they can do right now, and in that um, in that sense, kind of spread their bets much more wider than a standard VC firm does, where each partner makes you know, two or three investments per year. I mean, it's also interesting too, right? Because if it's not so costly or time intense, you know, time consuming or labor intensive, you know, you can make an investment in a startup that might not have huge potential, but a little bit of potential, but because your costs of making that investment have been reduced, it could be a worthwhile investment. Exactly. You'll you'll hear this when you talk to people about Silicon Valley that, um, venture capitalists really push every company to become a unicorn, to have a billion dollar, right. to have a billion dollar IPO or acquisition, and a lot of companies would be successful at a different scale. But the economics of venture capital don't really work that way, and so social capital is thinking, can, can we do it in a different way? Okay, so what about algorithms though? They're feed, they're, you know, they work with historical data that has bias in them. So won't those algorithms though just kind of exacerbate or keep the biases going? 
Yeah, exactly. Whenever you take a, a process and you automate it, um, the, there's this sort of inclination to say, well, it's clean and objective and, you know, wipe your yeah. hands of everything. That's never really true. Um, and so the question is, like, how will you end up distorting any process through automation? And in this case, they're really not taking any information about the founders themselves in the hopes that um, they can keep bias out that way. But they're aware that there may be some distortions along the way as you're looking at this data that, you know, doesn't come from nowhere. What's interesting, too, is, and I know you and I and Jason Kelly sat down earlier in the week and we talked about this. And I think Jason brought up the point, though, don't venture capitalists tend to invest, though, in the individual. They're just saying that's what we're really investing in. They've got to like the person and like what they're doing. So does that just take that out of the equation or will that be brought in, too, maybe? Yeah, it pretty much it pretty much takes it out of the equation. And you're right. That is what a lot of venture capitalists like to say that they bring to the table. They yeah. say, give us your money. I have a really good gut feeling for who's going to be the next Steve Jobs, and I'll I'll make sure you invest in that company. And, and Social Capital is saying, no, we're going to invest this in, in a different thing that really tries to take a look at the business and, and just pretty much disregard the specifics of the founders. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, right? You said he's, they're, they're just starting to play with this, but as the years go by and they stick with this to see what kind of happens in terms of returns. Exactly. And whether it becomes a more diverse pool, which he says... Make profits first, but if it's a diverse pool as well, that's a good thing. Right. I, I love it. It's a good story. Uh, Joshua, thank you. Thank you. Joshua Brustein, technology writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Check out Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands at Bloomberg.com and uh, also on radio and TV this weekend. Yeah, it seems like two days of U.S.-China trade discussions and not much has been done. Ending in Beijing with an agreement to basically keep on talking and little else. Andrew Mayeda is global trade and economy reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our bureau in the nation's capital, along with White House advisor Andy Puzder, former CEO of CKE Restaurants, on the phone from Franklin, Tennessee. Andrew Mayeda, let's start with you. So they met for two days and what, not much is done? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, really the only thing they were able to agree on is to continue talking. I mean, I suppose uh, that's a positive thing. Uh, we did get a copy of both the U.S. demands and the Chinese demands, and it's quite staggering, frankly, how far apart they are. Uh, just to give you an example, the U.S. has demanded that China reduce its trade surplus with the U.S. by $200 billion over the next two years. That's a really big number. I would think that that's a non-starter for the Chinese. I'm not even sure how they would go about doing that. And on their side, the Chinese have asked the U.S. to drop the investigation that led to the trade dispute in the first place. Uh, so I, it, it's a yawning gap. I think that that's what this week's talk showed. Right, because, I mean, our exports to China were only $130 billion. Imports from China were $506 billion. So when you're talking about a cut of $200 billion, um, that is staggering. And it also means we're all either going to not have clothes to wear or we're going to be paying an awful lot more for them because we're going to, uh, you know, I don't know what, you know, what that means. Andy Puzder, come on in on this. Uh, you're a White House advisor. Um, what are you hearing from the administration about what's going on? Is this just classic Donald Trump, the art of the deal kind of thing? I really haven't heard anything from people um, that were involved in the negotiations in China yet. I think they're on the plane on the way back. But it, look, this is nobody starts out where they expect to end up. 
Uh, and I, I don't think any, I, I, I'm not at all surprised that they're this far apart. What they needed to do was start talking, set some parameters. The parameters are set and they'll negotiate from here. So it's, it's like any business deal. You, you start off with your demands and you, you, you have what you know you want and you have what you, uh, what you would get if everything were free and nothing is ever free. Right, that's for sure. Andrew, you've been, um, as we said, you're our, our global trade and economy reporter covering trade and seeing different administration, different folks, different trade negotiations, though. What is different, though, about this round of talks between U.S. and China? Uh, well, the approach is different. I mean, the Obama administration had an approach of strategic patience. Um, they had a sprawling a system of dialogues uh, involving everything from wildlife trafficking to uh, chicken tariffs. And, you know, uh, officials from that era acknowledge now that, uh, you know, China wasn't really um, delivering on a lot of its prop, uh, promises and the um, the um, the progress was incremental and slow. So uh, the president is taking a uh, more aggressive uh, approach. Um, actually, th- the approach here reminds me a little bit of the NAFTA negotiations. Um, coming out of the gate, Ambassador Lighthizer uh, was very forceful with Canada and Mexico and said that the U.S. was definitely seeking reduction in the trade deficit. And, you know, it's about eight months later, and we're actually fairly close to a deal in principle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not out of the question that, that this gap could be uh, bridged, but uh, it, it will be challenging, I think. Andy Puzder, you know, safe to say that I've had a fair amount of guests who come on and say, you know, we don't necessarily disagree with the administration, um, Democrats, Republicans alike, saying that it's time, you know, that the Chinese are more fair when it comes to trade deals uh, and whether it's intellectual property and some other issues. You know, they do question to some extent the tactics being used by the administration, concern about, you know, maybe not realizing, you know, what China is doing on a long-term basis and the importance of China to the economy. Um, What do you say to that? Look, I think we needed to get China to the table. Uh, and and they may have been at the table with prior administrations, but I they may may have been there. Uh, it may have been appearing, but I don't know that they were there in spirit. I mean, they didn't. I don't know that they felt like they were negotiating. I think they felt like they were trying to avoid negotiating and trying to keep the, the situation the way that it was. That the trade situation right now is very favorable to China. So any progress we make is going to be better for the United States. And I look, I if. He's, this president's going to do what's necessary to get the Chinese to negotiate. I actually thought the comments by Yi Xiaoping a couple of weeks ago, where he got up and said, we're open to looking at this, we're open to looking at various aspects on intellectual property and on tariffs and on non-tariff barriers. Uh, while that was kind of criticized in the press, there's not really much progress. And you previously, I, I really thought it was Yi Xiaoping saying to President Trump, look, we're at the table, we're ready to negotiate. And I think what we're seeing here is that they are at the table and they are negotiating. Now, they need it's very important to the Chinese to maintain their dignity. They want to save face. They don't want to look bad mm-hmm. to the world community. They're a rising power. But I think that uh, I think they're at the table and um, and, and it, it will be difficult to get something done. But it's not impossible to get something done. You, you never want to offend your biggest customer. And clearly, right. we are their biggest customer. Right. Right. I I understand that. The the Chinese, though, you understand, of course, you know, really think in a, in a long-term perspective. And what is it that we as negotiators here in the United States need to think about not being short-term-esque 
and thinking longer term in terms of a deal that makes sense for the United States, but also with China? Well, I think, you know, the intellectual property is a huge issue for us. Uh, our technological advances, we need to find a way to protect um, what we produce here domestically. We need to be careful what we do, how much leaves our schools and universities and heads back to China. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of things we can do the long term that will protect the economy. Um, so, so, I mean, I think all of this could be viewed long term. I think the Chinese do have – it's easier for them to have a long term perspective because obviously they have a different form of government. We have a democracy where you need to have more immediate results. I think they, mm-hmm. they don't look at life the same way that we look at it. But uh, yeah, we need to keep our eye on the long ball and the short ball. We need to make sure we're, we're getting some immediate benefit because it, the disparities are so great. But long term, we need to protect what we produce here domestically. Andrew Maeda, what happens next now in these negotiate, negotiations? What's next? Do we have a timeline here? Uh, well, the thing that I'll be watching for next is uh, whether the U.S. follows through on the tariffs that the president has proposed. So the administration has proposed uh, tariffs of up to uh, uh, tariffs on up to 150 billion in Chinese imports, and uh, I mean we've got no indication that they're not going to fall through on that. There's a public comment period that ends, I believe, May 22nd. They have not set a deadline uh, for uh, when they're going to impose those. So I'll be looking to see if they follow through on that. And China, of course, has uh, threatened to retaliate. Now, separately, uh, I guess we'll see what happens next uh, with the talks. I mean, the president did uh, hint that uh, he's open to meeting with President Xi again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, he's, he's got his hands full uh, with North Korea right now. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty high-profile meeting. So um, so I guess we'll see what happens on the negotiating track. Yeah, definitely a busy plate there for the administration. Uh, Andrew Maeda, thank you. Global Trade Economy Reporter, Bloomberg News from our bureau in Washington, and our thanks to Andy Puzder as well, White House Advisor, former CEO of CKE Restaurants. And also, of course, when you're talking China, you got to think about that they are increasing what they do with the European Union. So that's always something to think about as well. everybody going beyond the resume to make matches between job seekers and employers yes finding a job continues to change in terms of some of the approaches out there our next guest uh, knows about this on this jobs friday we welcome to the phone or on the phone i should say in new york city claire mctaggart founder and chief executive officer at square peg hey nice to have you here um i know you guys are a startup uh tell me a little bit about what you're doing Sure. Thanks for having me, Carol. So SquarePeg is a hiring platform that matches job seekers to companies based on fit and not just resumes, like you said. So we do this through personnel assessment, which basically does a better job of measuring who a job seeker really is beyond the resume and measuring more about the company and the role. And then we use advanced data science uh, for matching algorithms and machine learning to do a better job at actually the recommendation engine, which determines which person should be recommended for which role. All right. How do you – and I'm going to – Forgive me for a second if this feels a little random, but we just had um, a segment on about how venture capitalists, one in particular, is working with an algorithm, a new algorithm to help in terms of selecting startups to invest in and in the process maybe hopefully take bias out of the equation because right now you have a lot of white venture capitalists, men, who tend to predominantly invest in other white venture capitalists. So how do you make sure that there's no bias in any of these algorithms? 
Right. So I think the first thing that we look at is why is there bias in the first place? And a lot of times that's because we're using human judgment or heuristics to take uh, a look at some of these sort of prestige metrics. Where did you go to school? Who are you connected with? So when we're using a really limited data set and having a person judging that, that's when we start to see some bias. What algorithms can do and what better measurement technology can do is measure more of the data that actually matters um, in determining success or performance, Mm. and then use rule-based systems or even machine learning, uh, so you have supervised learning-based systems to do a better job at matching. And so what we can do is take into consideration more of the data that matters. So what we look at at SquarePeg, for example, is not just your resume data, but what are the personality traits that matter when you're at work? What are the behaviors? What are your preferences and, you know, motivation? And so we can say this highly logical, detail-oriented person who performs well in a chaotic environment uh, might do well in this particular role. And so we're able to cast a wider net by including a lot more data and using that for really personalized recommendations rather than just having a person spend five seconds looking at a resume saying, oh, this person you know, knows three people at my company and went to this top school. Right. And so it allows us to have a wider reach. Um, it's interesting. You sent some data over and some research that said 46% of new hires are considered a failure six months into the job, 80% due to behavior and fit and not skill mismatch. Uh, we hear a lot from CEOs and a lot of from executives executives in terms of the hiring process that if that's kind of what's kind of key what is key is if you don't like this person or you don't think you can get along you're not going to you shouldn't hire them like they've got to fit into the company culture they've got to get along that that's important tell me what the success rate is of what you've been doing how do you measure it and what have you seen Sure. So ultimately what you want to do, what SquarePeg focuses on, first of all, is rather than having thousands of applicants and having a human spend three to five seconds looking at each applicant, it's a small curated batch with a lot more data on that match. So you're spending more time on a smaller number of candidates. So you're saving time and and increasing quality. Then the second thing we look at is how long does it take to get to the interview? And then ultimately what's going to matter is, is that person thriving in the job, which promotion is probably the best indicator of that. And, And what are you guys seeing? So we see uh, with the candidates that we put forward uh, much faster, you know, getting, having about five to ten candidates um, to get to one interview, mm-hmm. and then you can usually see within the first two weeks a uh, hire. Does this work for all kinds of jobs, Claire? I'm just curious, you know, or whether you guys um, work in certain areas, and, and does it work for all kinds of levels? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think companies are tackling this from all levels, from the hourly jobs to executive search. Where SquarePeg really focuses are what we consider the most difficult jobs, which are these business hires in knowledge economy jobs. So what we look at is, for example, sales and marketing. So you have a lot of technologies that will help somebody take a coding exam if they are in a tech job or showcase their portfolio if they're in a creative job. What SquarePeg really focuses on are these very difficult to measure jobs, for example, strategy, operations, sales, and marketing, where it really does matter how that person works with others, how that person manages, and how that person fits within the team. Really fascinating. 
exciting, especially when we, you know, every day talking to folks, companies about the use of data and interesting to see how you guys are doing it in terms of making um, matches between somebody looking for a job and those who are offering them. Uh, Claire, thank you so much. Claire McTaggart, she is founder and chief executive officer at Square Peg. You can check out more at Twitter on at Square Peg Hires. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, TikTok, everybody. Just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Alan Lance, director of research at LanceGlobal.com, president of Allen B. Lance & Associates, uh, joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Hey, nice to have you back with us. Thank you, Carol. Hey, uh, what's kind of on your mind right now? It's a great market. I mean, you got the volatility. You know, the last few years you had volatility in one direction. It was up, and it was very difficult, uh, really, to make a difference. I think passive investing, you know, is a good way to go, just like it was in the mid-'90s when you have a market like that. But this year has been, you know, totally different in that you're getting volatility in both directions. The intraday is just incredible, and uh, it, it's good for somebody that uh, is, you know, a firm that, that – really is doing the research and and uh, watching it, you know, minute to minute, you know, you can make a difference. Right. Fun. It's definitely a fun market to trade. It's a fun market to cover because there's so much going on. Having said that, do you feel like the trades that we see with all the volatility, are they justified? In other words, the stocks that gain, they're trading on fundamentals and that's why they're gaining. The stocks that get beat up, it's because their fundamentals don't look so great. Not necessarily, Carol, mainly because... Um, things are getting exaggerated and whenever you have that that's when you get opportunity and you know like our our number one selection uh, for 2018 was Chipotle and um, you know we recommended it um, 289 year end and it went to 247 by February they announced earnings and and it was a mixed bag of earnings it's up 45 percent this year yeah, and the same sales, same store sales were up, you know, 0.9, and they are starting to turn around. Again, nobody recognized it. And then uh, basically you get a few weeks here where, uh, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. Wall Street reacts, and, 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 and now they're almost overreacting, you know, on, on the positive side. So when you have that, you know, you ask, you know, is this fundamentally driven? No, because the, the stock it was going down even lower than where we bought it a uh, month after we recommended it, even though they were in the midst of the turnaround. And then, uh, you know, basically Wall Street wakes up to it and, and, and uh, you know, they're falling over themselves to upgrade. So, so I like markets like this because you get those overreactions, and uh, it's really strange. You know, learning for John Templeton, it was always a long-term cyclical process. Now it's like yeah. a few months. I mean, Chipotle's hitting our, our target for two years. It's hitting it in three months. After we had clients, you know, four weeks into it, complaining, why did we make this our number one selection? <laughs> so, I, bet, I bet you got a bunch of calls like, what are you guys crazy, right? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody on Wall Street's negative on it. You know, there's not no positives. You know, do you know what's going on, you know, as far as with their food source? And they still don't have that remedy. And there's another store in, in the southeast, you know, that had had somebody mm-hmm. getting sick. And, and and they miss the big picture. The big picture, you know, they really don't have the drive-throughs to most of their locations. You know, they weren't doing catering. International is totally wide open if you see what these other fast foods have done internationally and uh you know you got a a stock at historic lows yeah you know everybody's bailed out to us the risk has been drained out of it and and the reward is there it's just a matter of time what's now crazy with this volatile market the timing instead of waiting two years you know you're you're waiting two three months couple questions or couple observations i mean in fact you look at the balance sheet and i i spent a lot of time with the folks at chipotle i know the management it's kind of the old management that i spent time with and steve l is the founder but they definitely have an interesting model but just taking a look at the balance sheet i mean they're growing earnings they're growing revenues they're growing free cash flow they've got no debt uh there's some really interesting perspectives. And like you said, they got really beat up. Having said that, you said, what, in two or three or three months, they hit the target that you guys laid out. Do you guys sell at this point? What do you do then? We haven't sold yet. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. you know, we increased our target, you know, a, a little bit. Um, you know, we definitely wouldn't be buying here. Uh, basically, you know, our original target we had was, um, you know, 375 to 450. It's already over that. So, right. so now we're looking 450, you know, 500. Uh, but I tell you, if it continued to go up and got close to that, unfortunately, we'd, we'd have to, you know, take profits. Uh, there's a lot of positives, you know, like you said, you know, no debt, and uh, they've got a lot of opportunity. But um, it's not something that, that uh, you know, we would take partial profits and, and just ride to see if, if they've got a full turnaround and they can execute. I think new management can. I really like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it never hurts to uh, take money off the table, especially when, you know, from the February lows, it's up over 70, 75 percent. Right. And you've already, you know, popped a nice gain uh, already. Um, you know, S&P 500 relatively flat on the year, despite, you know, tremendous ups and downs. We know that. Um you know, where else might you be putting some new money to work as you look at the environment? Yeah, strange areas, you know, mm. like utilities we like, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. again, nobody nobody likes them. And, and some, you know, I, I think we're going to see some M&A in that, you know, space, and you're getting a good dividend. You know, while you wait, they've just been beaten up on, on a few fronts, and, and one of them is obviously the worries of higher interest rates. Uh, we haven't gotten into the staples yet. They've been massacred as well. Down 13% uh, as a whole, the group, if you look at uh, the S&P 500, you know, major industry groups, bottom of the pack. Yeah, and, and you know, as you know us, you know, they hit yeah. our radar, but we haven't pulled the trigger yet. Why? Why? Well, we want to have a catalyst. Like with, with Chipotle, the catalyst was new management and, okay. and, and all these, you know, open, you know, venues of new verticals to, to create revenue and growth. Uh, we don't see it with the staples yet, but they're getting to a price where they're attractive. So now it's a matter of doing the research and seeing which ones are going to be M&A targets, which ones might, you know, differentiate themselves in a, in a very difficult and competitive space with, with higher costs and squeeze profit margins. Did you and that's what we're in the midst of right now, and, and you know, we, we just have to, over the next few months, as the uh, stocks go down, uh, you know, figure out which one and, and, and try to make the appropriate yeah. selection. All right, but certainly a group that you're keeping an eye on. Hey, we got to run, um, but look forward to uh, our next chat. Alan Lance, he's Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance and Associates, uh, on the uh, phone from Toledo, Ohio. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 